If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 once again. We're going to close out this chapter this evening, uh, our third week and final week in Acts 8. Uh, so usually... Um, you'll notice that we kind of bridge these Sunday night messages uh, from one week to the next. There's a sequential nature of one study to the next, from one passage to the next. Of course, when we were spending time in just part of a chapter, it kind of works out that way. Um, but the next passage in Acts 8 sort of exists on its own, and in some ways, it's a clean break from what's came before it, and it's also a beginning of a new section, um, a new phase for the church and a new phase for the book of Acts. Um, and that's always exciting. Sometimes stacking these conversations on top of each other can get a bit heavy, um, even if there is something uh, to attain from each one in and of itself that we, in the text that we feature each week. Uh, but of course, the reason why we tie all this together is because Luke is telling a story uh, in chapter to chapter, verse to verse. Um, you know, they all build on each other, and it's telling a sequential order of events. And, and again, this isn't everything that happened in church history. It's just what Luke has been inspired to tell us and that God feels is important. And naturally, because of that, the, the, the sequences of events do kind of you know, come together and, and kind of work from one to the next a little bit better than maybe it would have if it was just every little detail from every single day of the history of the church. Um, but of course, again, Luke's telling us the story and he intends on us noticing these patterns and seeing the gaps being bridged from one section to another. And that's been pretty obvious for us. Uh, but so far in Acts, um, we've really talked about three major phases of the church, three ma- major you know, stages of the church in its early days. And I'm talking early, early days, just, just barely a few years in. Um, so just to break it down for you, we've talked about the beginning of the church, the beginning of the church, which is in Acts 1-2, uh, and, and the, the preparation that Jesus gave them in the upper room, how everything kind of kicked off in Pentecost. Uh, we've talked about the beginning, and then we spent from Acts 3 to Acts Five really, looking at the boom of the church, as in it went from being just a few to a couple thousand to a couple ten thousand in just no time, really. So there was the boom of the church, and we saw the boldness of the church in that same f- sequence of events. Uh, that, that as the church was booming, the disciples were bold. That the, the people that were opposing them couldn't deny that they had been with Jesus, even though they wanted to discredit them. They knew that they had no chance at discrediting them, because clearly these men had the power of God on them. Uh, the people that had killed Jesus uh, saw these men in his same spirit and thought, wow, we can't stop this boldness. And then around Acts 6, as the church begins to form and as more people begin to get involved, uh, we saw the breakout of the churches and we saw breakout characters like Stephen and Philip, uh, breakout of just being in Jerusalem and doing what they had been doing in and around the temple, breaking out to new places and new opportunities of ministry. And that led to an outbreak, an outbreak of persecution mandated by the government of Jerusalem, sanctioned by the uh, uh, overarching government of Rome. So as the church was breaking out, of its uh, comfort zones, there was an outbreak of persecution that was hoping to push them out or push them back and, and, and shut them out um, from moving beyond uh, the Jerusalem, except the outbreak really drove them out of Jerusalem and really set the stage for what's to come. Uh, and we saw that, the tea leaves of it last week, as they began to go to surrounding areas of Jerusalem and begin to reach people they maybe wouldn't have reached otherwise. This next section of Acts, of course, builds off of this breaking out and uh, fueling, uh, fueled by this outbreak um, that they suffered. But again, it's, all, it's really a beginning of a new section that's going to carry us through the next couple of chapters. So we'll call the next phase uh, Beyond Boundaries, Beyond Boundaries. So Acts 8, beginning in verse 26 through the end of Acts 12, is going to be the Beyond Boundaries phase section of the book of Acts. Uh, from Acts 8, 26, really to the end of Acts 12, the story is about the church truly becoming 
boundless, truly becoming uh, without boundaries, breaking limitations that they had once put on themselves, uh, not just in the one area that we were given an example of in Samaria, but they begin to go beyond the borders of Judea and of Israel uh, literally to the ends of the earth, or eventually to the ends of the earth. Uh, so when we get to Acts 13, we're going to see this phase evolve into another level that hinges on what we see planted in these few chapters. So as you read ahead, um, kind of make notes and see how they break boundaries and see how they take things to a next level as they go from being a local church to a global church, or in their day, as global as you could get. Uh, You know, Luke is such a powerful storyteller. God, of course, an even better storyteller, inspiring all this, putting all these events into reality. Um, He shows us the potential and the power of the local church as it was getting started and as it moved out of its comfort zone. So, just to set up the next couple of weeks, uh, as I want to talk about this Beyond Boundaries banner uh, that we're going to see tonight, kind of set, the, you know, kind of show us the first uh, signs of, of what they were capable of um, as they begin to, to be boundless and, and, and go beyond uh, their, their, their preconceived limits. We already know that Philip has broken the barrier and brought the gospel to Samaria, uh, but things are about to get even more wild and more unexpected in terms of growth. This really works to supplement our conversation this morning. I, I don't always work it out this way, but as I was planning this morning's message, looking at tonight's message, it really goes hand in hand, and it happens, I guess, as God would will it to often with our Sunday messages, morning and evening. So if you were here this morning, this is kind of a good appendix uh, to talk about uh, that, that same conversation of a God who is global and a God who you know, has, a, has, has a multiracial, multiethnic uh, global uh, family in mind. So it really supplements our conversation this morning that God has been preparing for this moment since the beginning. Really acts in many ways as a response to and a follow-up to what God laid a foundation for in Genesis. And you think, I can't believe it's, you know, all this is connected, but it really is. So I want to try to explain that for you, and I'll show you how it sets up tonight. Um, Remember, we talked this morning and you've heard of, uh, if you weren't here with us, you know about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, uh, which is where God confounded the languages of the people uh, that were united against him, and he was trying to protect them from themselves. Uh, Just like when he protected Adam and Eve from the tree of life, he wouldn't let them back in the garden because they would die apart from him. He was trying to protect the people by confusing their languages. Uh, And in that moment, uh, Genesis kind of interprets the Tower of Babel in a good way, as well as that negative way. So the Tower of Babel is, of course, judgment, judgment on the people who were united against God. It confuses them, confounds their languages, and separates them. But this is also an opportunity for God, an opportunity, and it's really the way that God had always intended things to be. Um, And in this moment, God diversifies and he spreads people out. And this is where the, net, the many nations of the world find their origin and, and come to be through. Uh, this was all God's will to, to show his glory through those many different people groups as we talked this morning. Uh, thus, it shows how he's sovereign over his command to Adam. He, he commanded Adam fill the earth, and, and they were all kind of staying in the same place. But in this moment, something negative produced a positive, as we see so often with God's sovereignty, that God spread them around the world for his glory. Of course, the people were spread in rebellion to God. That wasn't ideal. They weren't honoring him. But God wasn't done. We were just, they're just 10 chapters in. God had a big plan, a big story to write. He was going to redeem all of this in a way that would ultimately glorify him supremely. And that's what gonna, is going to tie us into Acts. Um, so remember, out of those nations, out of those people groups, God picked the tribe of 
Eber. Now you've heard of this name. I know everybody talks about Eber. Eber is found in Genesis 10, Genesis 11. Uh, Eber, if it sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar because the word Hebrew comes from that Hebrew word Eber. Um, Abraham is the one that is uh, the grandson of Eber. Uh, from Eber, the Hebrews, Abraham is picked to be uh, the man that God's going to start a nation through. And remember what God told Abraham back in Genesis 12. In you, or through you, or by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I'm going to do something with you, Abraham, that's going to be a global, and it's going to have a global impact. And in Acts, we see this finally being fulfilled. Now, in the Old Testament, it's clear that Israel blessed other nations, that Israel was good to other nations, and other nations prospered because of Israel's proximity. But this becomes personal in the New Testament. It becomes something that, that impacts us at our core in the New Testament, which was always God's plan. Um, because through Abraham came Jesus, and by Jesus, the whole world would truly be more than blessed. They could be saved. Galatians 3, Paul writes that so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So better than physical land and physical you know, heritage is spiritual heritage. Uh, better than something on earth to call our home for a short period of time is a heavenly home and a connection to God that goes with us forever. That's the true blessing of Abraham, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by faith. Abraham got a taste of it. We get the real thing. What was the confirmation of this blessing? Acts is where we see this really come into being because it's in Acts that we see the Gentiles get on board. In the Gospels, we see a few Gentiles here and there, but it's really in Acts that we see raw Gentiles had never heard of Moses, never heard of Jesus, never heard of the Old Testament, didn't know who Yahweh was. They worshiped all kinds of gods. In Acts, we see this promise fulfilled. God said, Abraham, you're going to bless the world. In Acts, we see the world truly blessed through Abraham. Now, Acts, uh, in, the, in the, what we've seen is ultimate proof of this uh, blessing or this confirmation is it, it began at Pentecost. So I want to show you over, uh, back, I want to remind you back at Pentecost how this started to come into being. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. Now, they weren't living there. They were vacationing there because it was festival season. Pentecost is not a Christian holiday. It's a Jewish holiday. It's when they celebrate uh, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the harvest. And so it's a celebration that goes kind of in sequence of, of Passover. It's a few weeks after Passover, 50 days actually, um, from the celebration that, that is this time of year. So in Acts, in, in Acts 2, there are Jews who are coming from around the world, people that were dispersed because of, of, of times past. They come back into town, but they are now living in every nation. And because of that, they're assimilated into those nations and they call those nations their home, even though they're making a pilgrimage to Israel. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So when the church got started and the disciples started praying and preaching, in the, go preaching the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem and in the festival square, they were, pre they were speaking in their own language. But the people from other nations of the world were hearing the, the word, hearing the gospel in their own native language. We'll see that word in a minute. Their own native language. And it says they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his or in her own native tongue? Now, I want to make this very clear. We talked about this a few months ago. Everybody in the ancient world that would travel away from home spoke Greek. 
It was not necessary for God to interpret the word to them. The disciples could have spoke Greek. The people could have heard Greek because everyone spoke the universal language, Koine Greek. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek. They didn't need this sort of language translation. They could have just heard Greek. They could have spoke Greek, heard Greek, and interpreted Greek. But God used the disciples in their own tongue, and he interpreted that language in the ears of these people to show something very powerful. God was undoing the curse of Babel. The dispersion of nations that confused the world, in this moment he was foretelling how he was bringing everybody together through the gospel. The universality of the gospel, and in this moment, this is what he's trying to say to us. Before too long, God wouldn't have to change the language. People all around the world would be speaking of and sharing the gospel in their own tongue. Right now, nobody heard of Jesus. It would happen eventually, though, by the end of Acts, everybody would be talking about Jesus and preaching Jesus in their own tongue. That's where we're going with this story. God is beginning to break those barriers and knock those walls down. He teased it in Pentecost. And as we, in this next section, we're going to see God begin to reach these different people groups one at a time. I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps kind of under, helps kind of pull the bigger picture uh, together for us. Um, so far in Acts, in terms of the mission field, the church has only spread within the bounds of Israel. Now, I know last week we talked about Samaria, but really Samaria um, isn't a foreign nation. Samaria exists within the boundaries of Israel itself. Just to show you, if you look in the back of your Bibles, you can see a, a bigger picture of this. But Samaria is that blue section. Um, so that is not, they didn't really have their own nation. That's just where they all lived. Um, the Samaritan people were kind of half Jewish, half Gentile, they had been basically when the Assyrians conquered back in 700 BC, uh, they intermingled with the Jews, and this this part of Israel was kind of the uncharted territory, was kind of the blacklisted territory, kind of was the you know we don't go there territory uh, because the Assyrian people had merged with the Jewish people, and the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritans, even though they were kind of related to them, basically related to them, but they pushed the Samaritans out of the fellowship with the with the temple. The Samaritans had their own temple, their own places of worship because of that kind of taboo because they had married in with pagans and married in with the enemy. So when they went to Samaria and Acts 8, that really wasn't going beyond the boundaries because it was literally within the boundaries. Clearly they had heard of Jesus there. Jesus himself passed through Samaria a time or two. The people had knew about Jesus, had felt the impact of Jesus. They knew this wasn't really new to them, even though it was where the Jews didn't really want to go. So from Acts 8.26 to Acts 10, we're going to see the Jews begin to truly break these boundaries and truly go beyond the borders of Israel and do what they were always destined to do. Um, we're going to see three people spotlighted over the next three chapters. So at the end of Acts 8, we get one spotlight. All of chapter 9 is another spotlight, and all of chapter 10 is another spotlight. So over the next three studies not three weeks probably, but three, three, uh, three chapters, uh, we're going to see three people spotlighted that represent God opening the door for the nations to know him. So I can't overstate how important the next three chapters of Acts are, not in terms of me preaching and you listening to me, but just holding your Bible and saying, wow, this is so vital to God's plan to reach the nations because God spotlights Three different people from three different people groups that ultimately show that God was reaching every corner of the earth. Let me prove, prove it to you. Back to Babel and the dispersion of nations real quick. That story is set up for us, talking about the post-flooded earth, 
uh, like this. Genesis 10.1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So after uh, Genesis 9, the, this is how the world's repopulated. And then Genesis 10 leads to Genesis 11, where the Tower of Babel happens, and they're all separated. But this sets up that story. And we're, introduced, we're, we're reintroduced to three people, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here's how this chapter ends. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth. So what does that say again? From these, who's these? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the nations spread abroad. So if you go back and read Genesis 10 and look at Genesis 11, more specifically details one specific tribe. Genesis 10 says, this is the people that came from Ham, people that came from Shem, people that came from Japheth. Now, I am somewhat of a nerd when it comes to Bible things and a lot of things, um, somewhat. I could take you through Genesis 10, and you would love this, I'm sure. I could take you through Genesis 10, and we could talk about every one of the 72 names mentioned, and we could trace from those names and talk about every nation that's come from those names from that point in time until present time. But that would take about 72 weeks, and y'all don't want to do that, and I don't know if that's really the best way to spend my time. So just trust me on this, if you will. And trust this verse even better. From these three, the nations spread abroad all over the earth. Now, here's why this is a big deal. What we witness from Acts 8 to Acts 10, particularly in the three figures that are spotlighted, is even more confirmation of God's globalization of the gospel. Now, again, Gentiles have already, already been saved, but this is uh, now far away from Jesus. So this is reaching people who were not in the territory hearing the, the gospel and even one person who was vehemently against the church and against the gospel but still represents one of these three people groups. And this is proof of the church's impact as it stands on its own and the power of God. So over the next three weeks, we're going to see Acts 8, a son of Ham saved. Ham is the for all intents and purposes, the father of the African people. Acts 9, we're going to see a son of Shem saved, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to see a, a Shemite saved, or a Semite, which is the Middle Eastern people, uh, and, and where the Asian people came from. And then in Acts 10, we're going to see a son of Japheth saved, which is a Greco-Roman person, which is where the Europeans uh, you know, came from. So again, Ham, Africans, Shem, Middle Eastern, Asian, Japheth, the Europeans, Russians, you can trace every nation of the world through these three figures from Genesis 10 and into the future. And it's so significant that the first three outsiders that are spotlighted post-Acts 8 as they go away from Jerusalem, go away from Judea, the three people that are spotlighted are from these three different people groups. I don't think that's a coincidence, do you? Because Acts is about reaching the whole world and let me just show you in Acts 8, 9, and 10 how we're going to reach the whole world because we're going to reach somebody that is representative of each of the three distinct territories of the earth. I think that's pretty awesome. Now, clearly, plenty of Shemites have already been saved because the Shemites or the Semitic people are the Jewish people. Uh, but I think Luke tells the story this way so that we'll pick up this Babel theme that was given to us in Pentecost and we'll recall that God has a global to the ends of the earth impact and it just so happens that the one that is saved in Acts 9 turns out to be the greatest evangelist to the Gentiles that's ever lived on the face of the earth. So I think that's a, not a coincidence either. So I hope that makes sense. 
Again, that might make me more interested than you, but I I hope you kind of see these things coming together. And I wanted to preface our time together tonight because it's more of a shorter study. But I wanted to show you uh, how this is one of the next three, one of the three major conversions that ultimately impacts the ends of the earth and is a reason why we are here tonight. Each of these conversions features unique circumstances that even more so glorify God beyond just race and ethnicity, uh, which only uh, will add to the power of the gospel, but I wanted to make sure this banner was over us before we dove in because I think God wants us to see that, uh, see that and see through the lens of this work that he began to do. So the first work, as we mentioned, is through Philip, Philip the evangelist, Philip originally a deacon, uh, to a man from Africa, son of Ham, man of Africa. Uh, but not just any man. This is a man whose story is full of God's glory. This is a man, not just outside of the boundaries of where God was doing all this work, outside the realm of where God had been working, this is a man who had a few, or really a lot of obstacles in his life that made him feel especially far from God. Not only was he outside the realm, the territory of what God, where God was working, but his personal life had a lot of obstacles in them that would have made him feel like God was far away from him. So with that being said, I want us to read Acts 8, 26 through the end of Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south toward, go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And I love that Luke editorializes and said, This is the desert. As in, nobody would go down this way on their own or without God telling them to. That's going to be important later. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So underline, highlight that. He came to Jerusalem to worship. And verse 28, rather quickly, we're told, was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him, and the place in the scripture which he read was this, from Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Because clearly Philip had preached the gospel to him. So Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, and you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus, and he passed through, passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea back north um, at the top corner of Israel. So I want to go through this verse by verse. I want to talk about Philip first before we get into our friend, the eunuch. Uh, First, I want to highlight Philip's obedience to God, sending him to a foreign, uncharted place. 826 says, the Lord, or angel of the Lord said, arise, go south along the road, which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, the Gaza Strip, 
uh, that leads down toward Ethiopia, which is the Jews came out of that place. They don't want to go back to that place. But what does Philip do? He arose and he went. He goes, and of course he encounters someone along the way. But I want to also look at verse, or highlight verse number 30, because when the Spirit says go to this man in the chariot, what does verse 30 say? So Philip ran to him. So first of all, we have Philip going when God says go, and then when God says there's your target, he doesn't just walk there, he runs there. Now again, he doesn't know where he, what he's getting himself into. He is just being obedient to what God is telling him to do. More importantly, Philip didn't know. Philip didn't know where he was going or to whom he was going. He was being obedient to the Great Commission, though. And that is the most significant part of this chapter in terms of how we can relate to it and how, what we must do in response in, in light of what he did. He didn't know to whom he was going or where he was going. He was being obedient to the Great Commission. Now, let me refresh you about the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse number 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So go and make disciples. Now, I want to break this down. Uh, again, the language here is very important. In the blue, uh, or in the teal is an imperative. It's a Greek word, a, the Greek, a Greek uh, a phrase that means you must do this. That the, the, the way the word is written, it's given not as an option or a suggestion. It's a, this is an imperative. We gotta do this. Remember the we must from Acts chapter five. We must do this. This is an imperative for Jesus. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. The word disciple, the word make disciples is really one Greek word. It's a word that means disciple as you live your lives. Your priority is to make disciples of what people or who, what kind of people? All people. All nations mean all, all ethnic groups. It, it can mean going to a foreign nation, but it just means you don't leave anybody out. Make disciples of all nations. And the three words in yellow are participles. They're, they're verbs that are modified by the imperative. As in, to be obedient to the imperative, three things you got to do. You got to go. You got to go. And if you're going, you'll be baptizing. As in, you'll show people there's a place for them in the church. So you got to go. And the next step is you got to baptize us and you got to make sure that they know Christianity is tied to the church. To be a Christian is to join the church and to work and to be a part of the church, to grow in the church. Baptizing as in being immersed in the body of Christ. So you got to go, you got to baptize, and you got to teach as in it never you never stop growing, you never stop learning, you never stop becoming more and more like the Lord. And as a Christian, we got to go, we got to embrace, we got to teach. And if everybody followed our lead, then every disciple we made would go and make disciples themselves. It would be a never-ending cycle if we were all obedient to the Great Commission. Now, we see, I could break it down in this chapter for you, we see Philip going, we see Philip baptizing, we see Philip teaching. Clearly, this is a text that is making it very clear, this is what it looks like to obey the Great Commission. Going, baptizing, teaching, he made a disciple of someone from all the nations. Now, that's a whole other sermon. Going is the first step of obedience to this imperative. We live to make disciples. As a Christian, we live not to make money. It's fine to make money. God gives it to you. He wants you to enjoy it. Not to, 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 to you know, be the best at our job we should be, and you should be the best you can be because we can do that for God's glory. But we live. Your number one priority, my number one priority, 
is to make disciples. Through our relationships and the impact that we have in those relationships, we live as Christians. If being a Christian is the most important thing in your, in, in, to you, and it should be, your priority as a Christian is to make disciples. And how can you make disciples? You gotta go. Intentionally, you gotta go, and of course that will lead to the next. We will only be open to make disciples if we are going toward people that need to be discipled. Now, if we take the imperative serious, the participles will come naturally or at least more easily. When it comes to all the nations part, we, what we talked about this morning is essential prerequisite. We've got to love people before we can go to people. We've got to love people before we have a passion to go to people and they'll never receive us if we don't first love them. We can't go to someone and treat them like a lab rat and say, listen, I'm here to make a disciple out of you whether you like it or not. Let me tell you, they're not going to respond to you, right? So we have to have a genuine love and, 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 and openness to people. The church ought to be known for that. Philip clearly was known for that. He was going, and that led him to be able to make a disciple. So, I, I, again, I love verse 30. Philip ran to him. How often, how often, and this hurts me, how often do we run to people with the good news? I run away from people. You can laugh. Um, <laughs> I, I, run, I mean, God help me, you know, really. God help all of us, but God help me especially. My, my, my personality, and, you know, I'm, I'm so used to preaching up here, sometimes I don't know how to do it out there, and, and God help me with that. But how often do we run to people? We've got, we're so busy, and appointments this, and this and that. We've, our, our priorities are so out of whack, aren't they? And until we admit it, we won't get to fix it. So I'll admit it for you. Our priority isn't making disciples, but Phillips was, and he wasn't getting paid for it. So, can't use that excuse. So, let's move on from before we get too convicted. Let's talk about our guy. Unnamed Mr. Eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch. A eunuch, if you didn't know, and of course you do, a eunuch is someone who has been emasculated. Uh, someone who, uh, because of being a part of some religious cult, was, uh, their manhood was taken from them to control them. Uh, and in the ancient times, this was a sick thing that was done to, to, to keep people as servants and keep people kind of following the, the rule of the, of, the, of the rich and the powerful. More on that in a minute, because I know you're just dying to hear more about that. Uh, but I think verse 26, the end of verse 26, is a description of where God was sending Philip is an editorial edition by Luke. Um, I think it's very important in explaining the eunuch status also. At the end of verse 26, it, Luke says, this is a desert. So Luke's telling us that God is sending Philip to the desert. This is a desert place. It seemed like God was sending Philip nowhere to no one. And, and the mention of a eunuch, not to be cruel, but when Philip saw a eunuch, it was almost like, well, yeah, of course, what, who do I run into in the middle of nowhere full of nobodies? A eunuch. Because the way eunuchs were perceived in the culture were they were nobodies. They were less than nobodies. And I'll prove that to you in a minute. As superfluous in a way, you know, this was a superfluous trip, a waste of time, resources, efforts. To, to run into a eunuch it would almost be an insult to injury. I'm going nowhere, I'm going to nobody, and I run into a eunuch, of course I do, because you know, this is just insignificant, it's a waste of, of everything that I could be doing. Now we're told this eunuch is someone important, but the Jews in Judaism, eunuchs were pariahs and were disgraced. Now most of the time, eunuchs, tell me, all the time, eunuchs couldn't help, they were eunuchs. But this is what the law says about them, and, and I, I, I didn't put 
the actual verse on the screen because I think you probably can infer why. If you really just want to know what it says, and if you have a modern translation, it's even more specific. Um, but Deuteronomy 23 says, no one, and it tells in detail what a eunuch is or what a eunuch had done to them. No one who is a eunuch shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No explanation is given. The law doesn't really explain why it's against certain things or against certain people. Now, let me, let me put this in context for you. Deuteronomy 23 goes on to say that if you're a Moabite, you can't enter the assembly. So we talked about a few weeks ago how Moabites were the bottom of the barrel in society, uh, how Samaritans were the bottom of the barrel. Like People, they didn't like them. They, didn't, they hated them. They wouldn't associate with them. So eunuchs are in that category. So Deuteronomy 23, man, if you're, if you're part of the category in that chapter, whew, you know, you, you know it, it can't get much worse. So the number one item on the list of who cannot enter the temple is a eunuch. Now, the law paints a picture of perfection. And assumed and informed, most had already fallen short. Uh, And a lot of it may not seem fair, but fairness ended a long time ago, before the law was ever given, when the garden was shut, shut people out. Thankfully, something better than fair was coming, but it wasn't here yet, according to Deuteronomy. Uh, eunuchs were looked down on because they came from pagan cultures and religious cults. Israel did not like, did not approve of what was done to them, and Israel did not have a place for them in their assembly. They were unclean, and they could not become clean because, well, they were eunuchs. So there didn't seem to be any hope for men who had suffered such reproach at the hands of the world. Because, again, you can't repent of being a eunuch. Not to be crass, but you can't. So it appears this eunuch has come to Jerusalem looking for hope, looking for answers and relief. Maybe he heard about some activity going on in Jerusalem. Maybe he heard about this new movement in Jerusalem and thought that he could go there and check it out. Maybe he thought there had been some reform in Judaism and he thought maybe they'll let people like me in now. Maybe he had never been there and even tried. We don't know, but regardless, he's going to be disappointed when he gets there. And what does verse 27 and 28 tell us? He, this eunuch had went to Jerusalem to worship, and without really giving us any details in verse 28, it says he was leaving. So the lack of information between arriving and leaving ought to inform us that this was a bust of a trip for this guy. He came searching for hope, but was turned away and left disappointed. But it seems he did not leave completely empty-handed because he has a copy, not the whole book of Isaiah, but a scroll that contained excerpts from Isaiah. Now, he may have had this before, but the way the story is being told, we assume he got it while he was there. Maybe he picked it up at a book stand on his way out, hoping he could figure out, hey, what's wrong with me? Why can't they let me in? And why don't they have a place for people like me? So if he had, if he had a scroll featuring Isaiah 53, as it says, it says later on in the text, it's most likely that he also had a copy of Isaiah 56. Why is that important? Well, take a look. Isaiah 56 says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Now, dry tree, euphemism uh, for, Hey, I have no heritage in this earth. I have no way to pro- pro- you know, proliferate my, 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 my life, my heritage. But also, he was not given access to the things of God. He was kept cast out. But here's Isaiah saying, Don't give up. And I think he's reading his thinking, well, I I didn't give up, and I went, and I showed up, and they wouldn't let me in. But Isaiah says, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast to my covenant. Now, keep my Sabbath means just find rest in God. Well, this guy tried to, and there wasn't a place for him. He was holding fast, but there wasn't a place for him, so he's got some questions. 
I bet he does. God says, I will give my house, I will give my house to within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. Now, cut off, I don't have to explain to you why that you know, has some double meaning in this, in this text pertaining to the eunuch. So God promises in Isaiah that one day eunuch won't be this shameful label because I'm going to use a particular eunuch in the future to show there's a place for people like that in my story. Isn't that awesome? How God's word is fulfilled. Now, the eunuch was cut off from his heritage, felt cut off from God's covenant. There was no way that inclusion seemed possible. It was a lost cause. These verses seem more like empty promises, but I'm sure he was thinking, what if? I mean, I'm trying to rest in you, God, but there's just nothing there for me. They put me out. They cast me out. They blocked me from coming. The culture made him feel condemned and inferior because of his condition in the flesh. The Jewish religion had no place for him, but Isaiah promises a better day was coming. I'm sure the eunuch had read this passage. He was promised a place, but he couldn't find it. He had been turned away. What was he missing? Little did he know that nobody was finding God through Judaism. Even the Jews couldn't get to God, even though they did ceremonially. As he continued to search the scriptures that he had, he got stuck on a passage from Isaiah 53, verse number 7 and 8 from Isaiah 53 is here in verse 32 and 33, where he reads this description of a man being led to the slaughter like a sheep, a man who didn't have any defense to give, a man who had his life taken away. And and the eunuch asks, he says, hey, who does this guy, who is this about? Is it about the prophet or is it about somebody else? And I think what he's saying is, is is this how I'm supposed to feel? Is this, you know, is the way I'm feeling condemned and cast out, is that, is that just my lot in life? Is there no hope for people like me? It, it, does this describe me? Am I just supposed to keep my mouth shut and just give up and accept that there is no place for me in this story? Is all I can expect is emptiness and condemnation? And thankfully, Philip has some good news to share with this man. Because in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and begins that scripture and preaches Jesus. And Philip says, no, 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 that's not about you. That's not about us. Even though we should feel that way, we should feel as if we have no hope because we are sinners. The Bible, the law does say that we have no place in the story. But thankfully, the law is not the final word. And thankfully, what the world says about us is not the final word. The eunuch had went to Jerusalem and found more bad news, but God sent Philip to find him bringing good news. The good news that he didn't have to bear his shame anymore or suffer reproach anymore. And I'm sure Philip must have mentioned some other verses from Isaiah 53 where he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed we are saved that is the gospel jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted that is the great exchange we were all like this eunuch there was no place for us we were told there is no room for people like us not just the jews but gentiles like you and me we had no place in this story a eunuch from africa was told there's no room for you there's no acceptance for you but jesus went to the cross not only to forgive the jewish people but to make sure that everyone on every corner of the earth would know there is room in the family of God for you 
You may have everything that disqualifies you bold printed on your shirt for everyone to read and you may be ashamed of what you've done and you may be rightly condemned for what you've done. But the gospel says that nothing of this world or of your flesh can separate you from Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. This eunuch is you and me, maybe with a little bit more going against him, but that kept him away from God's family. Externally, he wasn't even given a chance to measure up, but internally, we no, none of us measure up. Internally, we didn't even get close. We fell short before we even started. But neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, powers, heights, depth, or anything else can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. This is true about the eunuch. It's true about you. It's true about everybody. The eunuch almost thinks this is too good to be true. He says, hey, there's some water down the road. Can I be baptized? I mean, hey, go and make disciples and baptize them. Hey, is, can, I get, is it that, can I get in that easily? Does anything stand in the way? Of course, verse 37, Philip says, if you believe, then whatever has been in the way has been removed, and you're welcome, just as you are. Colossians 2 puts it like this, you were dead in your trespasses and circumcision of your flesh. God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, but not just the sins that we've committed. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, Mr. Eunuch, that has been canceled. The legal demands that, have, that oppose you, they were nailed to the cross. They no longer condemn you. He disarmed rulers. And authority. So the things of this world that tell you that there's no place for you that shame you, he triumphed over them. So the sins you committed, they're forgiven. The law that condemns you, it's canceled. The rulers of this world that shame you, they've been defeated. Covers every corner, doesn't it, of the enemy's ammunition. He goes on to say, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. Eunuch, there is room for you and everyone like you. Verse 38 says that they baptized him, and then the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip up in the air and took Philip to another place. You know, you know the Great Commission ends by saying, Jesus says, I'll be with you always to the end of this age. Here is Philip. God is with him, and God is moving him wherever he needs him to go. The Great Commission proved greatly effective, and it always will be if we're obedient. Boundaries are shattered. Lives are changed beyond what we consider possible. The gospel works, people. Jesus can save people. When a hungry world encounters a faithful church, lives can be changed. That is what Acts chapter 8 says to me and says to you. As God reaches someone that was considered unreachable because of his race, because of his history, God makes room for a man that was told there was no place. You tell me what God can't do. If you and I, the church, do what we have been called to do. God says there are no boundaries that cannot be shattered. There are no lives that cannot be changed beyond what you ever imagined. Let's put God to a test. How about it? 
Let's test out the validity of that statement and of this word. I guarantee God will be proven right once again. And better yet, lives will be changed. And you might realize you've got something in you that you didn't even know was there. Just like Philip has showed us. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this story. It's amazing. It's amazing what you have done through history. It's amazing how you pull all of these strings together and you bring this story to such an amazing conclusion. It's humbling that this eunuch was told by religion there's no room for you. And he found, he found that that was not true. That there was room because Jesus made room. God, this chapter has so much for us and it's so rich and it's so detailed about what the Great Commission can accomplish and what the sinners, what sinners can receive. And, and, and God, whatever side we're on tonight, I pray that we might would just trust you. As Christians, let us trust you to go and do what you've called us to do. As sinners, if there's anybody listening to this, as a sinner, we can be saved if we just trust that you have made room for us. There's no condemnation. There's, no, uh, uh, there's nothing that shuts us out or cancels us or overwhelms us. God, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this word. And may we apply it in our own lives. And may we go to the world and share with them this good, good, good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.